You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Washington Post National Investigative Reporter Carol Linick joins the Post to discuss her new book, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. And today I'm especially pleased to welcome my colleague Carol Lenig for a special discussion. Uh, Carol uh, had a best-selling book last year, A Very Stable Genius. She wrote with Phil Rucker, another colleague. And she has a new book out today, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, that's already making headlines. Three-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, Welcome, Carol. Thanks for having me, David. I'm looking forward to this conversation with a reporter I admire a great deal. Well, let's let's jump right into your uh, book uh, and start with the basics. You've been writing about the Secret Service since 2012. You won one of your Pulitzer Prizes for, for your reporting. You say in your book that over the last 60 years, the organization has grown from 300 agents and a $5 million budget to 7,000 staff a $2.2 billion budget. How did that happen? Even by Washington standards, that's pretty amazing growth. Well, I mean, in a way, it's it's not enough money and not enough people for the mission because the mission kept growing um, from the time that they were just protecting President Kennedy in the 1960s. They, after this moment, began protecting vice presidents, then vice presidents' families, then vice presidents' grandchildren, then presidential candidates, then Super Bowls, then you know, Olympics and the United Nations General Assembly and all the hundreds of foreign leaders who come to the United States every year. So their mission has um, really dwarfed their budget. But what's so interesting about their growth is that it hasn't really kept pace with that with that assignment. They have a zero fail mission. We all know the number one job is protect the president, protect the man. And there are a lot of people who agreed to speak to me and and really risk their careers because they were worried they couldn't deliver on that zero fail mission. We do have so much writing on on their ability to, to keep these leaders safe. You have a wonderful, rich discussion of the culture of the Secret Service throughout the book. In your introduction, you have a really memorable line. You say the Secret Service became a frat boy culture of infighting, indulgence, and obsolescence. We'll get into the details of of how they serve different presidents, but give us an overview of that, the cultural change and, and why it happened and what can be done about it. You know, I think that over the Secret Service is like a double-edged sword, the secrecy part of the agency. So there are all sorts of reasons to have classified secrets kept about the way they do their job, where the president's going to be when, how he's going to enter a building, even the classified programs that keep him from breathing in uh, anthrax if some is mailed to him, uh, keeping him safe from a nuclear attack, jamming communications so that no one can overhear his calls. You want to keep those secrets from our enemies and adversaries and keep him safe. However, the secrecy has also allowed this sort of alpha male part of the culture of the Secret Service to flower and bloom without any accountability. 
behind this secrecy veil, a lot of people have taken advantage, you know, and engaged in misconduct, engaged in, you know, this wheels up, ring off culture that was exposed when I first started covering the Secret Service in 2012. The idea that you were so um, protected and invulnerable that you could have a double life on the road, um, you know, a swinging single uh, because you're a cool Secret Service agent that women want to sidle up to at the bar while you might have an important job and a family at home. That was allowed to fester in this agency because of its secrecy, uh, because of its lack of transparency. You know, Carol, reading your book, I was reminded of some of the presidential palace guards that I've seen overseas in my career covering things abroad, that kind of arrogance, the super secrecy, the ability to commandeer any resource. I wonder if it, if it would be possible to have a secret service uh, that was more accountable, but still was able to do this very secret um, zero fail job. You know, I think you've really hit on something important. Um, there are some generals at the Pentagon who've said to me that they find the president's um, acquiescence to the Secret Service sort of mind numbing. The idea that they surrender all reason and rationality to the Secret Service's insistence that they can't share information. I'll give you an example. You know, something like 20% of the Air Force airlift is used to protect the president when he goes abroad. It's a stunning percentage of the, of the air power. And many people think that's not probably necessary and a huge expense. Another example of the Secret Service's sort of lack of transparency is not many decades ago, uh, there were inquiries into how much money it cost for President Clinton to travel abroad to Africa. There were a lot of debates about whether or not this trip was worth the expense, because it does cost a lot of money for a president, especially to travel to first world countries. What's interesting is that Several intel agencies, military agencies, people with a lot of classified secrets turned over to government accountability investigators how much they spent on these trips. The Secret Service was the one entity that said that because of national security, they couldn't provide that number. It's hard to really believe that that's the case, that they can't explain that. And as my great colleague David Farenhold has found time and time again, the Secret Service doesn't want to answer questions, for example, about how much money it spent uh, visiting Donald Trump's clubs and businesses and properties and how much taxpayer money went to, his, the, again, the president's company. Well, I want to get to, to Trump and other presidents in just a minute, but to uh, finish with this question of, of accountability, what congressional committee in the end is supposed to keep this agency uh, honest and are they doing their job with the intelligence agencies we do have intelligence committees they take their job very seriously they become prized assignments for members of congress secret service accountability at least in terms of any public visibility seems like zip what about that that part of it 
You know, before Cartagena, you're exactly right, David, before Cartagena erupted, there hadn't been a congressional investigation of the Secret Service for 10 years. Pretty stunning number of years to not look at an agency that, you know, at that time was probably spending about a billion and a half dollars. A billion and a half is dwarfed by other agencies. Uh, I'll give you that. But still, it's not an insignificant mission for our democracy. It's actually vital and it's not an insignificant amount of money. One of the problems, the, the committee that oversees this agency is the Homeland Security Committees in the Senate and the House and House oversight and Senate oversight have engaged uh, more recently in looking over the shoulder of the Secret Service. But one huge problem remains, which is after 9-11, the Secret Service really began being dramatically shortchanged because it joined this department where it conceivably could have done you know, quite well, but a lot of money and a lot of attention and a lot of energy, both by Congress and the actual executive, was flowing and funneling towards fighting terror in the skies, the, you know, the TSA, fighting terror at our borders, Customs and Border Patrol. Those agencies dwarfed the Secret Service. It was the redheaded stepchild in so many ways in the department. And you know, directors were a little wary of asking for a lot of money, which they needed to upgrade their technology because they didn't want to draw attention to a potential vulnerability and they didn't really want to draw attention, period. So for a long time, they really haven't gotten a hard look. And since Cartagena and since the jumper who made it into the White House so famously in 2014, um, the Secret Service, again, hasn't really gotten a fine-tooth comb look. And under Donald Trump, there was virtually no accountability for this agency. Well, we'll go through uh, presidents uh, since, since JFK in a minute, but I want to ask you one uh, breaking news question. Today, uh, as uh, for much of the last few weeks, we've had a uh, discussion of the January 6th insurrection and investigation of it. And you uh, write uh, that a number of Secret Service members cheered on the January 6th insurrection. Uh, uh, just curious about uh, that, uh, whether it's being investigated, whether there are concerns about uh, lax Secret Service activity because of political support for President Trump. Take us into that set of questions. You know, January 6th was one of the most um, sickening, to use President Bush's term, events that any of us have watched. Not because we take a political stand on what people believe or don't believe, but because it was an attack on the democracy that we hold dear. It was an attack on members of Congress, hundreds of them, who were fleeing for their lives. A vice president was being threatened with being hanged um, on the Capitol grounds for doing what was his constitutional duty, certifying a legitimate election. I was shocked when colleagues of agents who served and serve on the presidential protection team were sending me screenshots of those agents and officers' personal social media accounts in which they talked about the rioters on January 6th as patriots, 
where they talked about the illegitimacy of Joe Biden's election and how President Trump had been the victim of a, of a liberal and communist coup and unjustly denied his rightful second term. So it's pretty disconcerting when the agency that's considered the most elite of the elite in protection and responsible for the safekeeping of the presidency and the democracy if they don't believe the current president is the legitimate president and are actively stoking that conspiracy. When I asked the Secret Service about these findings, uh, these screenshots that I could trace to individual people who were on the detail or had served on it recently, I got a no comment from the Secret Service. I probed further and I heard from people inside the agency unofficially that they were looking at this through a sort of a social media artificial intelligence scouring uh, app. So they're looking at their employees' social media postings to learn about whether or not there's any political bias. And the director uh, reminded the staff around this time that they are supposed to be politically independent, objective, and staying away from partisan politics. But I have not heard tell uh, that anyone's lost their job or been penalized for these postings. I, I must say that that is shocking that members of the Secret, Secret Service could describe the people we all saw on television storming the Capitol as, as patriots. Uh, I wanna just bring up a, a question that one of our audience uh, viewers posed, Nancy Rando in Maryland, uh, uh, relative to, to Trump and, and the money that we're still spending. Nancy asked, will protection for the former guy, as she puts it, and his family end soon? Well, allegedly, um, and I say allegedly, forgive me, uh, it is intended that it will end six months after Biden's inauguration. It could be extended by the president if he so chooses or by the Department of Homeland Security's director. Uh, I don't expect that that will happen. But what was so unusual, Nancy, about this scenario is often there's sort of a courtesy extension for a president who's departing the White House for his children, especially children that are in primary school, high school, or possibly in the first few years of college. But it is unprecedented for the Secret Service to continue protecting, you know, adult children of a president who are, you know, in their 30s and 40s. And that's what's happening, happening here with, with former President Trump. He also extended protection to three of his closest aides, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, the Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, uh, and also his National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien. It's funny because um, Chief of Staff John Kelly, who served Donald Trump and often sort of butted heads with him, had urged that they cut the detail for Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin because there were no threats against his life. There was no reason to expend that money protecting him. But uh, Mnuchin fought tooth and nail to continue to have that protection and that sort of, you know, limo cachet um, through airports and through city streets. I can only imagine how much this is all costing us taxpayers. <laughs> uh, Carol, one of the pleasures of, of reading this book is the rich narrative uh, going through so many of the modern 
uh, presidency, seen through the prism of the Secret Service. Uh, visceral for me, um, because I remember this as a, as a boy of 13, was the assassination of President Kennedy. You have the most vivid graphic description I've ever read of, of what happened in that, in that limousine in, in Dallas. Uh, you also disclosed something that I just hadn't been aware of, which is that some of the Secret Service detail had been out drinking the night before with a, with a journalist uh, to boot uh, at a kind of sleazy nightclub called The Cellar. I want to ask you to describe that and also your feeling about whether uh, hangovers or just fatigue after that night out uh, with the boys carousing may have been a factor in this tragedy of President Kennedy's assassination. Um, thank you for the description of that narrative. I found it, um, you know, s sort of spine tingling and, and chilling to hear agents, um, many of them in their 80s and 90s who served at the, at the shoulder of President Kennedy, recount for me their experiences, and I'm grateful to them. Uh, they, re they revealed a lot about their own uh, impressions that day, but also just the crippling guilt that, that they and their colleagues carried for years uh, because they feel that they failed that day. A group of agents, no fewer than nine, um, according to the Warren Commission, had gone out the night before they were supposed to sort of shepherd the president on his, on his motorcade through Dallas to this place called the cellar. I mean, these guys work nonstop and they were run ragged by John F. Kennedy. Many of them were leapfrogging from city to city in their own homes just long enough to pick up clean laundry from their wives in a new suitcase and head back out on the road. Kennedy was a, a jet setter like no other president before him, and they knew they were exhausted and they knew they couldn't keep up. However, that night they also needed to get out and, and, and blow off some steam, and they stayed up late having a drink or three or four, and some of them got home around 2 a.m., one of them got home at 5 a.m. to their hotel room. So the Warren Commission investigation, and Earl Warren probably puts this the best, uh, the Supreme Court Chief Justice that Lyndon Johnson put in charge of the investigation of Kennedy's assassination, he said there is no person who can tell me that a Secret Service agent out until 5 o'clock in the morning, even having just a few drinks, is going to have the hair trigger reflexes necessary on such an important assignment as protecting the president on the next morning. In their defense, Secret Service Director Rowley, Jim Rowley, who insisted uh, that, he, that these people not wear a hair shirt of being responsible for a president's death, said over and over again to the commission and to Justice Warren, that he did not believe that drinking or that late night was the, was the reason Kennedy had been killed. He did believe a lack of training in split-second reactions was a factor. And, you know, one of the sort of heroic tales of the book is Director Rowley. You know, today you and I know, David, that somebody who loses a president would lose their job. 
Director Rowley, who actually has an interesting family link to our current Secretary of State, he insisted on staying, rebuilding that agency, hiring another 280 people, which he'd been asking for before Kennedy was killed, uh, and, and reinvigorating the training so that that split-second reaction would be instantaneous, reflexive, and there would be no pausing to look back over their shoulder at the sound of a gunshot in an open plaza. We saw that, and you describe uh, powerfully uh, how that split-second reaction uh, helped save President Reagan's life when he was shot by John Hinckley. I want to move to President Obama because it's some of the most interesting and to me disturbing material in the book. You say that President Obama was the most endangered president in history. And, and as I read your, your narrative, this is really is a story about race and racism, the, the just vile uh, threats and messages that were, that were sent. Uh, right, that we learned a lot about this thanks to a lawsuit by black uh, Secret Service agents. Maybe you could explain that background and, and the, the background of, of, of trying to cover uh, protect Barack Obama uh, in this very charged racial environment? Lot to unpack there. Um, before Barack Obama was even considering running for president, before Harry Reid tried to put some uh, wind underneath his wings to, to ascend to the, the White House, dozens of Black agents who worked at the Secret Service were getting more than restless. They were becoming incensed. They knew that their ratings for performance were higher than many of the white colleagues that they had who kept getting promoted around them and above them. They were training some of the people who then supplanted them and became their supervisors. And this was just unfathomable to them that the meritocracy was not winning the day in the Secret Service, right? It should be your performance. When they decided to sue their own agency, and, and we in Washington have seen many employees, Black employees, file discrimination lawsuits against their agency, against their institution or their employer, the reaction within the Secret Service was quite visceral. White agents and supervisors blackballed the black agents who signed their name on the dotted line to join this lawsuit. They were pressured to drop out of it. Uh, they were turned down for all sorts of assignments. And they stuck with that lawsuit for years as the Secret Service tried to drag it out and avoid turning over the documents that would, you know, the discovery uh, that would decide whether or not the agency was indeed engaged in a pattern of racial discrimination. When finally Judge Deborah Robinson in federal court demanded that the Secret Service turn over these records or face a daily fine in the tens of thousands of dollars, when the Secret Service finally coughed it up, lo and behold, the evidence of that racial and, and racist behavior within the agency was laid bare. Top supervisors were joking about uh, all sorts of bizarre things, how they could get Jesse Jackson killed, um, what, how that would benefit the country, joking about Maxine Waters, 
making sexual jokes about black males and sexual prowess. It just went on and on. And these were not, you know, junior rookies. These were people at the very top of the agency, the equivalent of the C-suite. As as you said, President Obama arrives and is inaugurated into the White House. In the months before he arrives, the director of the Secret Service is pretty worried because the number of threats against Obama's life as president-elect are nearly four times what the Secret Service has seen before with other presidents in history. And the director seeks hundreds of millions of dollars to try to up basically the security ring around the White House and around the president, increasing the technology, increasing the number of people literally guarding the base where he will live, the the 18-acre complex that is supposed to be the most secure in the world and, and hasn't been recently. But he is turned down for much of that money. He gets a little bit of it and and loses it again the next year. And, you know, the threats continue against President Obama because he's the first black president in America. Some of the threats are so um, frightening, you know, they can't be repeated. But there's a lot of talk about lynching him, a lot of talk about shooting him, um, a lot of talk about finding Secret Service agents that could help kill him. Pretty, pretty awful stuff. Well, the Secret Service must have done some things right with that volume of threats. The, President Obama's family, uh, thank goodness, survived those years. I want to ask you about the transition from our first black president, Barack Obama, to Donald Trump. You couldn't think of, of, of two more different individuals. But the Secret Service moves from one to the other. and. Uh, we had an interesting question from an audience uh, member, Carol Hollander in Colorado, who, who asked, what happens when a Secret Service agent strongly disagrees with the president's action? You could imagine that happening with Obama or with Trump. What's the answer to that? Uh, it depends on what actions the uh, Carol means. I mean, if it's a policy standpoint, the Secret Service's position is, You know, the people elect them, we just protect them. So the agent or the officer is supposed to basically, like a reporter, sort of bury that personal feeling, be aware of it, but it's not part of that job. It's not, their personal views aren't supposed to surface in the work of securing the democracy, securing the office. If it's an action that relates to the security, that's a whole nother matter. Uh, and it has arisen in, in, and created a lot of tension in the Secret Service. I mean, I'm going to go back in history for a bit just to give a couple of examples, but it relates to Donald Trump. The first president to really push agents physically away from him is, is Bill Clinton. It's a really marked departure. It's a presidency communicated through the television image. And agents complain that the that the new president is keeping them at a distance largely to keep them out of the television shot, you know, to keep them out of the picture that will tell the story of, um, you know, a a strong, independent president, an everyman who doesn't need any guards around him and is just a regular Joe. Well, Donald Trump actually did this as well, tried to keep agents at a distance. 
And it was a, also a source of stress because there were some people on the presidential detail who believed in particular at his golf club in Sterling, Virginia, that he was a sitting duck without more sort of people around him, more of a circle around him. You might remember that photographers and reporters were able to get pictures with telephoto lenses of the president, uh, you know, taking a swing at a golf club. You can imagine that same lens and agents did could be used on the site of a rifle. And that gave them a lot of pause. So those kinds of actions, a Secret Service agent is right to um, to raise and to to surface with complaint. Carol, we have just a minute left, and I want to ask you about our, our current president and vice president, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, sh- should we be worried about about dangers to them? I think of Kamala Harris being our our first uh, black woman and Asian American woman vice president. Do you think the th- threat level from what you hear? from your sources is, is, has jumped up again? Absolutely. And for both of them, because, I mean, it's not at the level that it was for Obama, you know, the trendsetter, but it's very high in part because of the fracture in our country. You know, the January 6th, while some would argue is so aberrant, it's a symptom of a larger problem in the country. People who are lulled into believing these conspiracies, believe that Biden and Kamala stole the election. And that has stoked a lot of anxiety in a certain portion of this country and a certain part of the the body politic. And Kamala Harris uh, and Biden both are at risk. Kamala Moore, forgive me, Kamala Harris Moore, because of her race and because of her gender. Both of those things are Um, disturbing to a part of America that supported Donald Trump's Make America Great Again, this idea of returning to some halcyon 1960s where, you know, white men ruled the world and and women stayed home, took care of children and and cooked. Nothing wrong with that, but there's nothing wrong with a woman being a vice president either. Powerful stuff. Uh, Zero Fail, a great book by a great reporter and colleague, Carol Lennig. Carol, thanks for, for joining us today. Thanks for the great questions, David. So uh, tomorrow at 11.30, please tune in for Gina McCarthy, the White House Climate Advisor. She'll join my colleague, Francis Stead Sellers. Be with us on Washington Post Live. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.